welcome to the Science at the Local podcast. I'm Hamish Clark. And I'm Kevin Joseph. How you doing, Kevin? Uh, hey, Hamish. Um, excited for the second installment of the podcast. Who do you have, uh, who'd you talk to uh, this week? Right, so I spoke to my friend, neighbor, colleague, general neighborhood genius, Dr. Aaron Greenville. Uh, he's a researcher in the Desert Ecology Research Group at the University of Sydney, and he's a regular at Science at the Local events at Springwood Sports Club. So it was very nice to, to have him on the show. Ah, that's awesome. What is his uh, research area? Right, so he's basically hitting the deserts and studying the, the creatures that live there, uh, the patterns that drive them, rainfall, fire. Uh, there was a little bit of an embarrassing moment in our podcast when I asked uh, uh, a question about fire, which if my bosses heard me ask, would have them shaking their heads, but I'm, I'm confident that um, I can direct them away from this podcast. Well, it's a good thing that you signed that, uh, that Aaron signed that disclaimer. Exactly. He shan't pass it on to anyone. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's an interesting chat. And if you go to our website, we'll post a few links. Uh, Aaron's not only a, a researcher, but he's a talented photographer. He's got some really cool photos that he's won awards for and there's even a couple of videos too if you're into that kind of thing oh excellent well enjoy uh <laughs> enjoy the podcast thank you for joining us aaron can i ask you first of all to just tell us very quickly where you are now uh, i work at sydney university in the desert ecology research group um, which is part of the school of uh, life sciences and um we focus on arid zone ecology in mm -hmm. central Australia, uh, trying to work out really how the whole system works, how all the animals and plants and various uh, things like wildfire and rainfall interplay with each other. So how did you get into the area? Uh, it was back in 2000, I signed up and did honours mm -hmm. with uh, Professor Chris Dickman and went out for my first trip and sort of just fell in love with the place and uh, then experienced quite a unique event where it decided to, um, it was about Easter time and then we had pretty much annual rainfall fall on us which closed wow. all the roads, it's all dirt tracks and wow. this full drive, free camping okay. between the dunes and we got stuck there for a while. Oh, for how long? Uh, it was a Added an extra week onto the trip, but Holy we moly. had to get flown out in the end. Wow. And it was awesome for a young honor student. <laughs> <laughs> it was all uh, high drama. Yes. I just kind of went, oh, is this, this is how all the trips go. Uh -huh. yeah, that's be cool. That'll go in the telly movie of your life. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Made some of the local rags. Right. So, yeah, that must have made quite an impression. Yes. Um, it did, and, and it kind of, because the, the desert went from been pretty dry to just suddenly underwater mm. and it really highlighted firsthand like those dramatic changes in the, mm -hmm. the boom and bust nature you kind of read about Australian boom and bust dynamics and, mm -hmm. um, got to see it unfold where suddenly there was just water in between dunes and dunes are sort of up to 10 meters high and then you see the crest of the dunes and then clay pans full of water in between them yeah so we couldn't get back out to the desert for a while. We had to get flown, flown home, and then the roads uh, didn't open again for for months. And towns got cut off, and we just had to wait and wait in Sydney to go back out. And we, by the time we got out there again, it was I guess it was winter. 
and we have uh, live trapping grids set up where we sample the small mammals and reptiles and we do veg surveys as well and mm -hmm. suddenly the pop by the time we got out there again the populations had just exploded they erupted sort of 60 fold to what you wow. normally expect and we were very busy mm. um, but it was just yeah dramatic change of green along with the red dunes and blue skies and budgies and flocks of hundreds just amazing. And so you've basically been doing that kind of work ever since then, is that right? Pretty much, yeah. Um, usually since then there was at least one trip per year I'd get out on, either um, working or if I was working on other jobs I'd volunteer and go out. So mm -hmm. We have a big volunteer program to get okay. all the work done. Yeah. And um, yeah, then I uh, was lucky enough to go back and work full time for the last decade. Great. And so you've uh, you've always stuck with uh, the kind of dry, arid area. You haven't thought about uh, you know expanding into something temperate or subtropical. Or there's enough to keep you going there. There's no reason to kind of go anywhere else. There is. It keeps drawing you back, though. Um, I did spend a couple of years working um, with state forests, and, and that took us into the forests around the, the coasts. Okay. To the eastern New South Wales and yeah. Hunter. Mm -hmm. And that was good to kind of see the, the difference. And then I think looking at uh, comparative work between how Central Australia works and, and how more music or wetter areas mm -hmm. uh, work is yeah, one of the next steps to you, you kind of discover general ideas of how the system might be working and then you want to expand that to see well, does this still apply in, in other types of environments and mm -hmm. other ecosystems. And if mm -hmm. it does, then you can start to really get some broad understanding of of how the ecology works and I guess a larger Australian perspective. So are there many different groups working in the, the area that, that you're working in? Not really. Um, we're in our little sort of 8,000 square kilometre corner of the world. <laughs> it's um, Wait, it's, how big is that? Is that the size of the the, um, the region that you travel to? or That's the size of the study region. That, yeah, wow, 8,000 square kilometres. It goes across. There's three properties and just a little bit of a fourth one um, each property is yeah, two and a half thousand square kilometers upwards wow and they're both uh, either cattle stations mm -hmm. or um, now there's a couple owned by Bush Heritage Australia mm, okay which was um, purchased in 2004 and 2006 kind okay. of one of the emphasis one of the reasons was not only to preserve such a unique and quite diverse area, um, but also because we had been doing so much work, the program started in the early in, in 1990, so mm -hmm, mm -hmm. there was a, a long-term data set there already. And mm, which is like gold for any kind of ecologist or really lots of scientists being able to have yeah. a long-term data set. It's then you can really start to, to work out how the system works. Were you involved at all in the, the Bush Heritage Group um, purchase? Did you know about it as it was happening? Or? Knew about it, it was yeah as it was going on. Um, Were they kind of checking with you? You know, is this would this be a good spot to buy? Or yeah, um, it was recommended by a group of, of people that had been out there before, mm -hmm. um, uh, from graziers and naturalists to mm -hmm. to I guess I guess more science bent people, mm -hmm. and they themselves saw the I guess the natural the beauty that was there. That mm. it's think people often think of deserts as being quite 
sparse and not much happens. But Just a bunch of sand, right? Yeah, but it's <laughs> one of the most diverse places in the world mm. um, for reptiles. There's more diversity in Central Australia than there is anywhere else in the world. And, and it's wow. it's not even just by a few species. It's sort of 50, 60 species of reptiles plus. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then you might go down to a dozen or 20 or something somewhere else. Like there's no comparison. Mm-hmm. And then for other groups like the small insectivores, uh, mammals, there's it's highly diverse. And so your work doesn't just focus on one, you know, species or, you know, kind of animal. You're really looking across the whole range. Is that right? Yeah, that's, that's right. So from small mammals and reptiles, so, so anything about the size of a house mouse to uh, sort of rat size, um, basically whatever can fall into our traps okay. and, and can't get out again. Okay. Uh, and then we also use different techniques like more recently remote camera trapping to look for feral cats and foxes, look at dingoes, uh, kangaroos. Mm -hmm. Um, Again, the small reptiles up until the smaller goannas. After they get to a certain size, they can kind of go down the trap and get out again. So is that, uh, I mean, do you like that, that you can actually, you're not just looking at one one species or even one kind of family or or whatever they're called, that you, you need to kind of be across what's going on through a huge variety of different creatures? Yeah, I, it, I think it makes it a lot more fascinating because mm. uh, it's very hard to generalise otherwise, mm-hmm. like, um, even for the mammal. So it's a desert. Mm. It doesn't rain very often, but we compared, say, a group of rodents with a group of dasyurids, which are the small insectivore mammals. Mm-hmm. And How do you spell that? Small insectivore mammals, what did you call them? Oh, the Dasyurids. Dasyurids. Yeah. Well, what is that? Yeah. Well, how, do, how do you spell it? We're going we're gonna to include a link for our listeners to the Wikipedia page for this. Uh, put me on the spot now. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, we'll get the link off Aaron after the yeah. call. Please continue. Sorry for interrupting. Um, even with, and same with the, some of the small reptiles, mm. um, they all show very different responses to mm-hmm. rainfall mm-hmm. and fire. Other sort of uh, drivers like that. So. so tell me about fire then, because most people probably wouldn't associate fire with deserts, but it obviously plays some kind of role. So what is it that's burning? Is it kind of intermittent grasses or what? Yeah, so it's predominantly a spinifex mm-hmm. uh, system, which is a, a, quite a, like a hummock grass mm-hmm. land. It's mm-hmm. a spiky grass full of resin, highly flammable. Mm-hmm. Um, and then kind of pictured donuts across the red the red sand and then sounds delicious <laughs> green donuts which hurt <laughs> and um, after good rainfall events these uh, patches of bare sand between these spinifex clumps get linked up by other grasses that just come up for the summer just to show their, their face quickly mm-hmm. and that links all these highly flammable patches together and right so the connection is the key there yeah and and then you can get areas that because there's no one out there right there's not many people no um, i was going to ask about about that (laughs) but so uh usually the fires come in summer after the lightning storm set Mm -hmm. them off and they will go across hundreds of thousands of kilometers Mm -hmm. Um, there's nothing really to stop them other than the wind Mm -hmm. or Mm -hmm. uh access old access tracks for fencing 
changes in weather conditions really. So. so you're getting, you know, reasonably large fires or very large fires, what, close to every year or a bit, a bit less frequent than that? No, for us, we did have a look at that look, using satellite imagery hmm. and it's about once every 23 years. Okay. So it, and it always corresponds after those really big extreme rainfall okay. events. But they'll, they'll only happen that infrequently every kind of 20 years or so. Yeah, so they'll probably happen maybe 10-ish years. Mm -hmm. um, but a fire would have already burnt part of that landscape mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 10 years prior. Mm -hmm. So it kind of fills in, goes, oh, okay, I'll burn where I haven't burnt in the last 20 years. Mm -hmm. And then that cycle kind of repeats. And Right, so you would have seen what a couple of fires in the time that you've been yeah you've been yeah following yeah there's one in what's slight I guess different to a lot of parts of the world and other environments even in Australia is if you add water that's when it burns mm mm yeah it's counterintuitive yeah. I should declare an interest I've I've been studying bushfires too but um, uh, from a, a fire weather and kind of climate modelling perspective rather than ecology. But I've just joined a group full of fire ecologists, so I'm, I'm taking the crash course. So <laughs> this is great for me. But yes, it's uh, you often hear the idea that temperatures are, are going up, therefore there'll be more fires. But that doesn't uh, recognise what's stopping fires happening normally. And obviously, in the desert, it's kind of hot all the time. It's not the temperature mm -hmm. that's causing it. It's as you say, maybe it's that rainfall pulse which promotes a bit of fuel growth and connectivity. Mm, that's yeah, interesting. Exactly. And and temperatures have increased over the last hundred years for Central Australia. Um, we did have a look at a whole bunch of weather stations around the Simpsons. I was going to say, yeah, is there good coverage at all of, of temperature or rainfall there? On the edges, mm -hmm. um, near homesteads, towns. But once a gauge in the middle somewhere. And then we've set up a network of about 12 stations okay, as well. Because, okay. um, yeah, the coverage starts to get very yeah, thin. Yeah. But even looking at that, um, long-term coverage from from the Bureau. Mm -hmm. We found that temperatures had increased in the last hundred years in line with all the climate change yeah, increases yeah. globally, yeah. But for us, I think what was more <coughs> interesting is that there was an increase in the magnitude of those big rainfall events. Those okay, some heavy downpours. Yeah, yeah, and then the frequency as well had changed, so it was becoming shorter. Okay. So you're adding more rain at shorter Shorter intervals, intervals. Okay. which could mean more fire as well. Right, so so is there uh, any consensus at all on how the system might change under climate change? Are there kind of too many variables or uncertainties? I think that's that's going to be the, the real focus of of the rest of our work, mm. particularly for me. That's where I've got a bit of a, quite a, an interest in trying to, to work out all those variables mm. and then how all those different interactions between different species and between different species in the environment are going to play out to try and predict what is going to happen as, you, as we keep changing the climate. Mm. And, and what about human pressures? I mean, uh, do they come into play at all? Obviously there's grazing here, so it's not a completely pristine habitat, but is that something that's changed over time or you're expecting to, to change? Uh, it it has changed quite a lot over time. It the properties prior to bush heritage were weren't that heavily grazed, and the and 
grazing leases didn't really come into full swing until the 70s. Mm -hmm. It was all kind of that, that outblocks of the bigger stations around the area and, and it's not very fertile area. Spinifex mm. isn't very nice to eat. No, well, it doesn't. Again, you know, you hear the word desert, you don't think, oh, I'm going to go and start a business up there. But <laughs> well, yeah, plenty still do. And, uh, but the stocking densities are extremely low as, as a consequence, and the grazing mm -hmm. history isn't as long where we are mm -hmm. as, as other parts of the country. Mm. And then when Bush Heritage uh, came along, they've destocked two of the properties as well. Mm -hmm. So the grazing has, has been removed completely. And so can you incorporate that into your studies at all and, and see how the system responds or is that... Yeah, we can. We actually had a, a PhD student um, do that, Uncle Frank, a okay. few years ago. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, um, and some uh, further work that needs to continue mm. to, to really pick up the, the long-term changes. Mm -hmm. Wow. And so have you, you've had your trip for this year already or are you, are you going again anytime soon? Uh, we did have a trip in April. Mm -hmm. That's our. We have a big trip in April where mm -hmm. we take out up to you know five carloads of people, mm -hmm. willing volunteers, mm -hmm. uh, and then for the rest of the year there'll probably be another two trips. But on on average, there's about four trips per year. Mm -hmm. um, How do you get there? We drive. Drive from here. So we drive from here. Yes. We're recording in the Blue Mountains, uh, <laughs> west of Sydney. But those of you around the world listening. <laughs> <laughs> Hence the birds. Yes. Uh, wow. And how long does that take you, sorry, to drive? Two and a half, three days. Okay. So it's... Um, Lots of pit stops at Macca's. We do a bit of a bakery coral. Okay. Yeah. Um, we stop quite frequently um, to um, stretch our legs because mm -hmm. it's... The cars are, you know, four or five people mm. full and mm. change drivers. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Uh, Follow all the appropriate OHS standards. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and so is the, is the field work kind of the part you relish the most or is it the kind of analysis afterwards or, or the whole thing? What, what is it that you, you really enjoy about what you do? Uh, I, I think it's got to be a whole thing. Mm -hmm. um, you get quite inspired when, you, when you're out in the field. Mm. Um, come up with ideas, uh, new projects. You run around like mad collecting all the data, mm -hmm. and then when you get back and you run all the numbers, it's still a, a sense of you know, excitement when you see the numbers come in and, and the results come in. So there's, there's discovery at every st stage, I guess. Mm -hmm. That's great. It's great to hear someone who's so enthusiastic about what they do. I used to work in government, just for the listeners who are wondering why I might make a remark like that. <laughs> uh, so we can expect you to be making these uh, annual pilgrimages for what, the next 30, 40 years? That's the dream. Yeah? Yeah. If, um, Great. Keep, um, keep pushing long-term research, long-term research funding. Mm -hmm. um, this, along with other long-term programs, can, can really be observatories that, that mm. monitor the ecology of Australia. So. And if you had a, a manned observatory, would you want to just live there full-time, surviving out there in the desert? <laughs> There's been talk every now and then of research stations <clears> and, <throat> and whatnot, but um, that would help extend the time you could spend there and diversify what you could do, because mm. at the moment, everything that we have, we have to, have to fit in a vehicle, mm -hmm. including ourselves and our everything, clothes, mm -hmm. water, food. Coffee take, machine. Coffee machine, mm. definitely. <laughs> Um, there's no electricity as a consequence, so 
other um, having a research station or uh, access to, to buildings mm-hmm. would expand I guess, mm-hmm. what could be done. Um, but yeah, it's good to spend time there, but it's also good to come home and, yep. and discuss mm-hmm. ideas. And, mm-hmm. you know, Okay, well, we probably should leave it there. Um, thanks for your time. It's been very interesting talking to you. And I'll, uh, I'll call some, uh, maybe some links for listeners who are interested in following up on any of the ideas, uh, finding out more about, about the topic. Yeah, thank you. Okay, all right, well, bye for now.